Thanks for joining me on another of my Stray Bullets podcasts. In this episode, I'm going to try, insofar as I can, to discuss the violent dissident Republican microgroups collectives comprising of a scattering of old provisional IRA members who still cling to violence, which defines them, along with criminals who seek shelter behind the Irish Republican banners of ideology and communal defenderism. The general foot soldiers at distance are most often disenfranchised youth who have been indoctrinated and corrupted in the belief that violence equals identity. Now I'm not going to go into the background of the dissident groups which began to emerge following Sinn Féin's 1986 RDS and that information is widely available on the internet. So let's begin. Today there still remains a contention between the now constitutional provisional IRA and the form of Sinn Féin and violent distant Republican groups. I use the term violent in this context to distinguish between Republicans peacefully opposed to the Good Friday Agreement and the continued presence of partition and those who seek to use violent acts of terrorism against the state. This contention, or one factor of contention as it were, draws deeply from the well of Irish Republican theology. That the patriot dead, that's those killed or self-sacrificed in pursuit of an Ireland free from the bonds of Britain, which to use Bean's phrase from um, his writing political quarterly, are embedded in the language of sacred, that is Irish soil, and the Republican cult of the dead. Tong, who also wrote in political quarterly, identifies a core belief in Republican theology, that the patriot dead have provided the mandate for various Irish Republican groupings, even if, and this is the key, even if a mandate from a contemporary electorate evades such groupings. <clears throat> Thus, I could maybe hazard that in the dogma of dissidence, that it is only when Ireland is united once again and all the elements of British rule are removed permanently that the patriot dead may rest along with their imagined licence, which is used to support subversive violence. In essence, the longevity of the cult of the patriot dead provides a ready justification for dissidents to continue the armed struggle. Another struggle for Irish republicanism in the wake of the Good Friday Agreement and the cessations of violence it seemed to deliver was that of support for policing in the form of the Police Service of Northern Ireland. Uh, you can see some of my earlier podcasts in which I talk about the transition from the Royal Ulster Constabulary to that of the Police Service of Northern Ireland. Eventually, after much politicking, posturing and persuasion, Sinn Féin finally agreed to the Police and Justice Reforms embodied in the St Andrews Agreement. Indeed, Republican commentators, especially through the Republican Network for Unity, cited that Sinn Féin's endorsement of the RUC slash PSNI and distant republicanism, the changes to policing in Northern Ireland were purely cosmetic. Just in respect of that, Here's a taste of some of the comments published by the Republican Network for Unity. Sinn Féin's endorsement of the RUC slash PSNI is of course also an acceptance of the British occupation of Ireland, given that nationalists and Republicans are being encouraged to work in a proactive way with a police force unwilling to even negotiate its accountability regarding security issues nor the tactics it uses to maintain the security of the British state here, a police force 
It is important to add, which celebrates the framing and wrongful imprisonment of Republicans, as well as openly advocating a policy of targeting vulnerable young people for use as informants. The commentary continues in such a way as the attempt to undermine the police's involvement in local communities, um, basically saying that the police had failed, and it's also dissident Republicans trying to promote their place as communal defendants. And also what we find the RNU is trying to, or were trying to give voice to, was that in essence the provisional IRA had more or less been disarmed as its weaponry was criminalised, whereas the police services of Northern Ireland retained and remained armed, while Republicans had to bow to the state's version of legitimate violence, thus to collaborate with police. Agents of the state and Republican nomenclature was anathema and it flew in the face of Irish Republican theology. Back in 2002, Jerry Adams made a statement as follows, quote, I don't think we can force upon unionism an all-Ireland which does not have their assent or consent and doesn't reflect their sense of being comfortable, unquote. For many pub- Republicans, this was seen as a complete retreat- betrayal of the principles under which they had conducted their armed struggle and been killed or incarcerated. They further interpreted Adams' statement as Sinn Féin becoming aligned with the SDLP and constitutional politics, which proved a bitter pill for many who had lambasted the SDLP during the Troubles. In fact, former provisional IRA member Anthony McIntyre was scathing in his media publication The Blanket. In it, McIntyre wrote, a revolutionary body that settles for and then seeks to legitimise the very terms it fought against simultaneously delegitimises and arguably criminalises its own existence. Consequently, historians of the conflict, now armed with the present Sinn Féin logic, will all in probability come to view the IRA campaign much more negatively than may previously have been the case. A sad denouement to an unnecessary war in which so many suffered needlessly. Also riled by Jerry Adams' statement was a New York-based Irish journalist, Damon Lynch, who said, quote, When claiming to have entered a new phase of its war of liberation against the British, the reality is that the IRA is now engaged in little more than a territorial scuffle. This may constitute community defence of a sort, and many nationalists clearly tolerate or welcome it as both necessary and justified. But it is not republicanism. Perhaps when the fact is acknowledged, we will be spared the now familiar spectacle of Sinn Féin conducting a chorus of a nation once again when they know the band is actually playing Rule Britannia. A collective residue of all this debacle was to create yet another dichotomy within republicanism, with some of the old guard, that is how some uh, professional IRA veterans of the Troubles like to refer to themselves, and who had aligned themselves in whatever form with violent Republican dissident groupings. Well, such old guard Republicans were quite vocal in that they did not consider themselves dissidents. On the contrary, they would instead state that it was not them who had dissented from any of the Republican principles such as abstentionism and elections from the Dáil, instead affirming allegiance to a 32-county republic as it declared by the first Dáil in 1919. The revolution was betrayed by Sinn Féin, they would cry. As ever, in Irish Republican theology, the martyrs always take centre stage. 
Their commemoration would instill tension between Sinn Féin and dissident Republicans. The former would prioritise commemorating the dead of the Troubles, while the latter would concentrate on the War of Independence, the Civil War, along with the failed 1956-62 border campaign. Such commemorations are bound by their very nature to have both Republicans aligned with Sinn Féin and those who would view Sinn Féin as counter-revolutionary, overlapping at some commemorations, creating a friction of ownership of the dead, if you like, and the right to their commemoration. And so, as dissidents would heckle Sinn Féin as counter-revolutionaries, Sinn Féin would in turn label dissidents as criminals. In Republican historiosity, being labelled a criminal by other Republicans is known as felon setting. This term was coined by the Fenian leader Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa in 1858 when a local newspaper editor in West Cork demanded the arrest of Fenians who had been drilling and marching. Rossa stated that they should be arrested under the Treason Felony Act of 1848. Aside from Adams's caveat of 2002 and Sinn Féin's subsequent support of policing and justice, another thorn in the side of dissidents was the voluntary surrender of weapons by the Provisional IRA. The act triggered Republican Sinn Féin, who crowed that no other Republicans in history had handed over weapons to the occupying forces, and that Republican Sinn Féin had no interest in Armani suits, expensive cars and holiday homes as a payoff for capitulation. Or had Republican Sinn Féin glimpsed a reflection of themselves, as is anachronism, in a world where America's war on terror was changing the geopolitical landscape, supported by Britain, who had effectively dismantled the military infrastructure in Northern Ireland. In fact, as is now generally well known, especially through Ed Maloney's A Secret History of the IRA, Adams and Co were involved in a secret peace process from the early 1980s. Add the factor that a number of para active service units had been wiped out by British Special Forces, most notably the East Tyrone Brigade at Loch Gall, which scuppered para GHQ's plan for a Tet Offensive. That of course is a reference to the Viet Cong Offensive in 1968 during the Vietnam War. This so-called offensive of paras would have taken place along the border. It's interesting just on that aspect to note that the most violent dissident groupings exist around Derry and Fermanagh. Republicans in border areas would consider the presence of partition still to be a contested issue, which may be why dissidents in those areas are more active than their urban cousins and may, like Parra before them, come to consider equality, diversity and respect as the key issues as they would be in a sense removed from the border towns on either side of it, unlike some members of the dissident groupings in those regions. Of course, a long thread within Irish republicanism in Northern Ireland has been the manufacture and maintenance of as wide a possible chasm between the police and the community, primarily in nationalist working class areas, which in republican parlance may be defined as communities of resistance. These are then governed by the dissidents, much in the same way that the provisional IRA governed them using extreme violence, carefully rephrased as punishment beatings, which also may involve the use of firearms, ideological rhetoric and the propagation of a distrust in police. Of course, such facets of community management has always reaped financial rewards 
for armed Republican groupings through extortion, control of the distribution and taxing of illegal substances, taxing and control of general criminality, money lending and any government grants etc. Maintenance of so-called war chests has proven a profitable enterprise for some individuals within republicanism. However, Sean Lynch of Sinn Féin determined the restructuring of policing as part of what he calls the hollowing of the Union, in which policing is accountable to the Irish people, not that familiar term, securocrats. Yet dissident Republicans would contest this statement by asking how can Sinn Féin commemorate Republican martyrs by sitting on policing boards or the Northern Ireland Executive. And if we look at policing today, well, despite more Catholics joining the PSNI, dissidents would often rebut this by not only putting out the usual stall that policing in Northern Ireland is still that of a colonial armed wing of the state continuing to oppress nationalist communities. In fact, some dissidents have even gone so far as to say that Catholics in the PSNI are from middle class areas and therefore would look down upon their working class counterparts, seeing them as deserving oppression through the state organ. Interestingly, Tony Catney, who was former director of elections for Sinn Féin, has alternatively recognised the rise of the Catholic new money class. Hitherto anonymous and apolitical but nationalistic in its aspirations as a theme of political opportunity for which Sinn Féin may realign its voting strategy through which to accommodate same. Yet this may be alien thinking to the dissident, who when he murders or attempts to murder a police officer, he views himself as giving back or attempting to give back control and sovereignty to his community, the working class community. That's a rhetoric, but it's one which falls flat, given that nowadays dissident Republican grippings are just like their loyalist counterparts, little more than violent armed organised crime groups exploiting the symbols and ideology of the past for criminal gain and to oppress their own people. Indeed, we've seen such exposed in the cowardly attempt to murder PSNI officer John Caldwell, how Republican and Loyalist organised crime groups will work together. The attempt on John's life, instigated by an organised crime group leader, whom John had put behind bars, this OCG leader then sought revenge by way of murdering John in the hope that it would also be a demonstration of the OCG leader's power as well as intimidating police officers. Nevertheless, these dissident Republican microgroups still fight for the hour of legitimacy through weary propaganda, no matter how fragmented they have become due to continuing police and intelligence services successes. They still pose a threat to police officers and the public at large by the recklessness and amateurness of their so-called military actions. Some time ago, Des Dalton, then president of Republican Sinn Féin, offered some of the rhetoric through which dissident microgroups, as well as Republican organised crime groups, seek to justify their attempts to murder police. Dalton would say, quote, the Royal Irish Constabulary became the Royal Ulster Constabulary and they ultimately became the Police Service of Northern Ireland. But why the cap badge may change, the point of these forces remains the same. They are there to uphold British rule. They are an integral part of the British state forces. If you join a force which upholds British rule, you are putting yourself in the line of fire. Unquote. 
obviously that's an attempt to intimidate young Catholics from joining the police service of Northern Ireland. The late Martin McGuinness was quite vocal in his criticisms of dissidents. In Sinn Féin's 2007 conference on policing, he said that, quote, we, the provisional IRA, fought the British to a standstill. These people, here he's referring to the dissidents, have yet to fight them to a start. McGuinness would further call dissidents traitors to Ireland. In the nomenclature lies a paradox of sorts within republicanism. McGuinness would cite himself as being a freedom fighter while he refers to dissidents, who would claim to be upholding the spirit of the proclamation and martyrs of 1916, as well as that of the first all of 1919-21, through which it would claim Sinn Féin are traitors to. So is a good IRA freedom fighter and bad IRA dissident? Sinn Féin would shore up their argument against the legitimacy of dissidents by saying that they have no mandate. Yet through the savage, violent years of 1970-1981, the provisional IRA and Sinn Féin had no clear mandate to speak of. But today Sinn Féin would say their campaign during those years was wholly legitimate. Even a past Secretary of State, Mr Sean Woodward, threw his hat into the ring by describing dissidents as criminals who just like shooting people. Granted, we had a proliferation of these types in the recent past, but just as in political history, was this an Anglo-Irish political line being drawn between the old, i.e. good IRA, and the new, i.e. bad IRA? So I think this is kind of relevant to my discussion. I mean, in the terms of freedom fighter, terrorist, criminal, um, nomenclature, and it also brings me to the recent claim by the provisional IRA through Sinn Féin that their armed struggle, their campaign of violence, was one which was justified because they had no alternative. In keeping with revolutionary tracks and figures, I'm going to look at some of Che Guevara's doctrine. Since he was widely read by Irish Republicans, along with Franz Fanon, as they formulated their propaganda, so let's look at Che Guevara's words in the context of Clausewitz, whom Robert Taylor paraphrased as follows. Guerrilla war is the extension of politics by means of armed conflict. Therefore, guerrilla war equals revolutionary war, which is the extension of politics, of course, by means of armed conflict. To legitimise its violent past, the provisional IRA Sinn Féin would claim that the conditions were met by which there was no alternative. In his book Guerrilla Warfare, Che Guevara writes the following, quote, Naturally, it is not to be thought that all conditions for revolution are going to be created through the impulse given to them by the necessary minimum without which the establishment and consolidation of the first centre of rebellion is not practical. People must see clearly the futility of maintaining a fight when the forces of oppression come to maintain themselves in power against established law, peace is considered already broken. In these conditions, popular discontent manifests itself in more active forms. An attitude of resistance 
by the conduct of the authorities. Where a government has come into power through some form of popular vote, fraudulent or not, and maintains at least an appearance of constitutional legality, the guerrilla outbreak cannot be promoted, since the possibilities of peaceful struggle have not yet been exhausted. Close quotes. So is Paris Sinn Féin saying that when the British government put its soldiers on the streets of Northern Ireland that the conditions were met? Or did the old guard of the IRA border campaign merely see this as an excuse to take on the Brits as it were? So what was the conduct of the authorities which prompted the crystallisation of resistance and the fighting? Because Fannin has also argued that the actions of the occupier at a critical stage in the development of liberation become the fulcrum around which liberation is organised. I mean, I could mention such actions as in August 1969 when the Royal Ulster Constabulary drove up Devastrate Lower Falls with vehicle mounted machine guns which they fired and which led to the deaths of four innocent people including a child or 1970 when the Lower Falls curfew was brought in which ended up in four civilian deaths although it was 1971 when the IRA killed its first British soldier or we could look at August again of that year uh, when internment was brought in which resulted in nine civilians being killed or of course moving through to 30th of January 1972 which was Bloody Sunday. Of course at this stage it would also be remiss of me not to mention the UVF who from 1966 on seemed to engage in a number of killings and attempted murders following on their statement when they said they declared war against the Irish Republican Army and its splinter grips although later adding the caveat at the time the attitude was that and this is Gusty Spence if you couldn't get an IRA man you could shoot a take. He's your last resort. One of the key factors to this type of warfare, be it cited by Che Guevara, Fanon, or the IRA's Green Book, is the act of provocation reaction, whereby there is a possibility that the state will be seen to have acted in a wholly oppressive and in some cases lethal manner. Such an overreaction may encourage the victims of such overreaction and they add in their support to that of the guerrilla. This is a tactic para quickly adopted and one that the dissidents struggle to enact through organising disorder, mainly involving youths in the hope that any police who respond may do so in an aggressive and overzealous way, by which they can, in the same way as para successfully did, grow as communal defenders of their community. Still, this doesn't really answer the question of no alternative, I know. I don't think it does. And while it's one I'll most likely return to, in the interim, I'll just leave it for better minds to judge. As for the dissidents of today, while their factless attempts to harness validation still prove a danger to police and the public, they're little more than a cluster of Republican organised crime groups, selling their wares to those organised crime groups throughout the rest of Ireland, exploiting ethno-sectarianism in nationalist areas, especially amongst youths who seek a sense of identity, purpose, even excitement, as well as those who feel isolated or excluded from political, social, cultural or economic benefits.
when in fact these dissident groups are busy poisoning and enslaving their community by controlling and managing drug dealers, petty criminals, money laundering, extortion, protection rackets, together with wider criminality of the respective organised crime group itself. So, I'd just like to finish with some words by René Garand, who writes the following in his book, Violence and the Sacred. Given the fundamental importance to mankind of the transformation of bad violence into good, and the equally fundamental inability of men to solve any mystery of this transformation, it is not surprising that men are doomed to ritual, nor is it surprising that the resulting rites assume forms that are both highly analogous and highly diverse. So that is what Gerard has to say. So if you'll allow me to include ideology in these forms, then I may by extension cite Vaclav Havel, who states in his essay, The Power and the Powerless, a secularised religion, hereby ideology, retains hypnotic charm, accepting an abdication of conscience and responsibility for the vanquishing of anxiety, striving for purpose. So maybe in the context of violence and the violent ideologies which seek to shield and defend it, there's no excuse needed and there's no alternative required. Oh, well, thanks for listening. I hope I didn't run off on too many tangents. I have a kind of tendency to do so. Um, And especially in this podcast about dissident republicanism, um, republican theology, the cult of the dead, things can become blurred, especially given the numerous fractures in republicanism and even that in loyalism. It just seems to be a striving for some kind of ideology and some kind of justification for murder and killing, the type that has sort of shackled our society even this long after the Troubles and sort of bogged us down in ongoing sectarianism. Anyway, maybe that's for another podcast when I hope to look at the ownership of the past and the contestations over it. So all that remains for me to say is just thank you very much for joining me once again on this podcast. I really appreciate um, your endurance as it were um, and I hope you'll join me for the next one okay thank you